Welcome back to the World Extreme Medicine Podcast with myself, Ryan Walker. This is the second part in a two-part mini-series on pre-hospital triage tools. So the last episode looked at warm zone triage. This week we're going to look at 10 second triage with Claire Park. So this is a podcast which has aired elsewhere but has been kindly um, by the authors. We've had permission to air it on the World Extreme Medicine podcast as well. So this is a fundamental shift again from what was smart indeed or start triage and in the conversation we examine many facets of the 10 second triage tool. So please do enjoy. Uh, This is the second and final part of this mini series on the evolution of these triage tools and what you'll notice about the conversation is that it really does remove these physiological markers and it's something we broach in the conversation and is a fantastic iteration and indeed improvement to uh, pre-existing tools. So what I wanted to do is look at this uh, new triage tool, this primary triage tool developed by Claire and a research team. So it's been accepted and agreed by NHS England for use by all UK ambulance services and also national police services and fire and rescue services. It's also been adopted by the uh, RNIHI and indeed different various mountain rescue teams across the country. If that wasn't enough, it's also been adopted uh, by UK MOD, the Ministry of Defence, to be rolled out across all UK military personnel. So Claire Park is a consultant in pre-hospital emergency medicine for London HEMS and anaesthesia and critical care medicine at King's College Hospital in London. She's also an army consultant with over 20 years of deployed military experience and is a medical advisor for specialist firearms teams to the Met Police. She's also worked closely with all the emergency services in London on developing the joint response to high threat incidents, in particular following the attacks of 2017. So she's also the chief investigator on a UK nationally funded research grant looking at the evidence for improving patient outcomes in hot zone in major incidents and has developed key relationships working this area with members of the committee of tactical and emergency casualty care over the last four to five years. So that's quite an quite a bio, Claire. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Owen. It's a pleasure. And thank you very much for inviting me. Listen, it's uh, it's a pleasure to have you on. Claire, can I just um, maybe initially get you to speak to a working definition of triage, um, if if that's possible? Uh, yes, of course. So uh, tri- triage essentially can be used at any phase of a casualty's journey, from the point that they become unwell or, or injured until they leave the the hospital, really, and then and then could even go on to sort of rehab. But particularly for this project, we've been talking about the triage definition we've been using is that of the early scene triage. So essentially, a way of sorting or prioritising casualties for that immediate treatment and prioritisation for evacuation. And when I say that kind of early phase, I guess we're really focusing in on that first essentially few to 10, 20 minutes of of, of a multi-casualty scene um, to really focus in on those important life-saving interventions at that point in time. I suppose in retrospect, having dealt with a couple of major incidents myself, that is where salvageability is, I guess, you know, doing the most of the most in, in that short space of time. And um, I suppose 
as well intuitively i've always felt maybe you have as well that just a semblance of whatever we do have at the moment isn't necessarily working and we'll dig into that uh shortly but um but certainly from my experience using the smart and start triage tool could you maybe and indeed maybe yourself using either the smart or the start triage tool could you maybe speak to what you saw within sort of rate limiting steps to these approaches yeah, absolutely. I mean, the part of the reason part of the reason for actually developing this is because it, it felt like it was originally for non-healthcare providers where we started. Um, and we wanted something that would work for everybody, because really that first 10 minutes or first few minutes is is often not healthcare professionals. Um, but even for healthcare professionals, it feels that the practicalities of the triage tools that have commonly been used. And actually, when you look, there's probably, I think on a literature review we did at the beginning of this, there's about 19 different published primary triage tools, um, all of which have a slightly different variation on a theme. Most, in fact, all of which require you to measure some sort of physiology. Um, most of them need you to remember a particular uh, framework of physiology so they want you to remember a range of respiratory rate a range of heart rate or a capillary refill time uh, and measure it um, and then work out which category people go into and I don't know about you but I don't think I ever measure, actually measure a respiratory rate I mean I look at a patient and I go are they breathing fast or slow are they working hard or not and to be honest the same for the pulse rate is it but is it bounding? Is it weak? Is it there? But in a super sick patient, it's really hard to feel that pulse rate. And that's in someone who does it all of the time. So when you walk into a room where there's multiple casualties and you're sort of hit by that wall of everything going on, and then you've got to focus on counting. One of the things we've seen in a lot of these, a lot of training scenarios and actually for real is that people don't, they really struggle to do that counting and it takes all of their bandwidth. Um, and actually, if we look back at the tools that have been used, a lot of the testing has been not done, actually people feeling for pulses and, and, and counting respiratory rates, but it's been done on cards that tell you what the respiratory rate and the pulse rate are. And even then, if it's given you for 10 seconds, you work out what it is in a minute and your head's gone. So in reality, how much those tools are actually used and are useful is the other thing. So probably leading on to some of your other questions, but if we look at the retrospective data analysis of them, um, those, those retrospective studies are done on first available observations, which are, I think, very rarely, if ever, the actual observation at the point where those casualties are injured because no one's writing those down. So we're extrapolating something that isn't actually what happened. Uh, you make a really good point here, Claire, and it, it's going to lead into my next question. But it's it's around you know force uh, forcing clinicians and or otherwise to do maths quite quickly. So there's maths in a triage sieve, and then there's maths in a triage sort, and and um, and sort of the triage sort of uh, uh, um, has characteristically been extremely difficult because it's based on subjective tools as well as objective ones so putting the gcs in with the respiratory rate with the systolic blood pressure in the but aggregating the you know the the sum total of those is actually really difficult especially when your amygdala is firing when your physiology is 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 awry but um i, I guess so i want to look at just 
the empirical literature because you did notion towards that and then i actually want to look at the the major killers that you were after because there's some abundantly apparent major killers that feature in this tool but there's there's some real nuances here that we intuitively knew we we should go after which which the 10 second triage does go after let's just look at the empirical literature for a second so you said there's nine the empirical literature said there's 19 different tools in 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 circulation but could you maybe speak to what the what you found within the empirical literature yeah absolutely i mean i think a lot of the literature I think there's only actually three tools. Certainly, I haven't done the search in the last year or so, but when we did the search when we started um, a year or so ago, um, we redid it. Um, most of the studies uh, are based on retrospective data studies or they're based on uh, testing within a classroom type environment where people are given the observations and the respiratory rate and heart rate. They're not in the scenario actually measuring them. Um, there's only three tools that have actually been used and recorded to have been used in reality for a real major incident. The, like the, the, There's 13 retrospective database um, reviews of their use. Um, I think there's no doubt that having a tool is better than having nothing. And that's kind of where we started with this because the police officers were expected to prioritise casualties with no tool, no ability, because they weren't taught formal triage, which made things much worse for them. So I think I, I think I would absolutely agree with any of the literature that says having a triage tool is better than nothing. And I think that's almost what we're comparing, because we're not comparing something that could be better. We're comparing just what we had. So, um, and I think we're not comparing it against what actually happens. So if you look at the physiology of people, you know, what, my heart rate and respiratory rate wouldn't be normal when, if someone who I love or who I care about has just been shot at or killed or run over or injured, um, or I was fearing for my own life. And I don't think that's ever recorded in that early bit. You know, we're, we're retrospectively looking at observations, at first observations at hospital, like the TARN database has looked at, um, or even first ambulance observations, but hardly anybody's going to actually record that. So I think what we're seeing is that definitely a system needs to be there. Um, and the literature tells us that that does make a difference. But the practicalities and the pre-resource management aspects of, of, of maintaining your bandwidth in a situation that's high threat, of physically being able to do it and have the situational awareness to realise when something different needs to be done for the person next to you and not get stuck on one patient and move on, all of those kind of crew resource management aspects really build into a tool that needs to be practical in real life as opposed to based on academic databases. Claire, you mentioned a number of things in there around um, just looking at, interestingly, at your own physiology and indeed physiology of of um, of survivors and indeed what, what they may be going through uh, in, at that time, which would potentially in in certain triage tools trigger uh, priority one patient. Could you could you maybe speak to a couple of things? Maybe firstly, uh, if you could speak to the major killers you were going after and and. And where you maybe saw the greatest utility for this tool and then maybe on the back end sort of your own anecdotal experience within major incident and where you maybe saw the deficits uh in 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 a triage tool but maybe maybe on, on the on the front end what were the major what were the major causes of mortality you really wanted to pursue so i think there's the two things that we know 
are the killers in the first you know we don't know exactly the time frame and that's one of the things that our, our NHR project is trying to clarify a little bit closer but I think we know enough from the literature in Afghanistan and Iraq and and other places that the things that kill people in the first 10 to 15 minutes are airway obstruction uh, and external bleeding that can be controlled so what was described as catastrophic bleeding um, and really if you did nothing else other than have a way of very quickly assessing a patient for the need for those two interventions and then moved on to the next patient rather than getting stuck in a full sort of full assessment and doing everything you know how to do for one casualty, then it feels like a false false multiplier to save lives where you've got people moving on. Um, A lot of people are taught to do CPR on someone who's in cardiac arrest, but almost you can argue that by that point, there's more things that are more beneficial than being stuck doing that. So if you can open an airway, make sure it stays open, put them in a recovery position, move on to the next person, stop the external bleeding, whether it's junctional bleeding that needs packing or a tourniquet, then doing those things quickly and moving on are the things that can't wait. They can't wait 20 minutes because if someone's bleeding from an external catastrophic hemorrhage and you step over them and carry on with your role, if you're a firearms officer, for instance, by the time the ambulance crew come through, if that's 20, 30, 40 minutes later, it's too late. So we really wanted to focus on those two primary things that most of us who are healthcare professionals, certainly as air ambulances, are never going to be there in time to do anything about unless we happen to find ourselves in the middle of the event. Um, and then the other bit we've brought into this is the penetrating trauma so the bit that it feels that external hemorrhage doesn't pick up on is the non-compressible internal hemorrhage that really none of us can do anything about at the scene we can try as air ambulances we can give blood we can try to do procedures but in reality those casualties need to be on an operating table with a surgeon as quickly as possible so we really wanted some way of flagging those patients as a priority for evacuation even over some of the people that have potentially got hemorrhage control already so you make some fantastic points there just just around looking at um what triage tools would do well uh, which is bleeding and opening airways but also like like you said so some of the aspects about penetrating torso injuries which historically would not the sequelae or consequences might might be beyond sort of five, 10, 15 minutes. They know, like you said, they know they need to be expedited, but you know, we, we were speaking offline around, you know, archetypally, you know, pain increases heart rates, respiratory rate, children compensate well, bleeding can be masked if it's, if it, if it's within the, the torso or it, could, or it can be intra abdominal or intrathoracic. Um, that these things are not easy to measure, but the mark one eyeball you know that these patients are going to need to be in surgery sooner rather than later it you almost don't need the physiological parameters to tell to tell you that absolutely and i might just jump in there because that intuitive triage that i think we do as senior clinicians is a really important point this tool we've developed is is for everybody but Actually, I think the aim is that you we now focus on that for the early response. And then really that thing that an algorithm can't replace is that is that blink knowledge of a senior clinician who just looks at someone and is like, they're, they're super sick. I don't need to do anything else. I know they need to go. Or, you know, your five, 10 second primary survey tells you everything by looking at them. You wouldn't expect someone without years of clinical experience to be able to do that. But equally, an algorithm can never replace 
that years of experience. So I think there's the 10 second trios tool for the most people coming in as the first wave, but as soon as possible, if we can then get senior clinicians, whether that's paramedics or doctors in to really do that intuitive look, then to almost pick out the P1 pluses, as I describe them to after that as the sort of second wave. So actually you've got that, you've, you've picked out your P1s, you've picked out the people you're worried about, and then you get the next level of, of triage to look at that so I think it's worth just making the point that we're not taking away from the importance of having that intuitive triage but that this tool is really about that early bit when you can't have those people there and you really need a system of framework something that enables people to speak the same language as well and maybe I'll come on to that when we talk about how we developed it but it's really important for us that people have that common language and understanding so it's almost a force multiplier of everyone working towards the same goal. So we'll look at the design phase, actually, Claire, because I think it's super interesting how you distilled and and maybe, so to speak, triage the 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 algorithm, how you distilled the algorithm. Um, you've spoken to some of the, the early scene triage considerations, and you, I think it's something you notion towards quite rightly. So is you know physiological parameters aren't helpful, but also the the, the cognitive load of having to remember a complicated algorithm anytime i've been faced with a surge event or indeed a, uh, a mass casualty incident or a, a really difficult challenging road traffic collision your your long-term memory is the first thing that actually doesn't function and actually you need these these moteric ingrained subconscious pattern recognitions to to rely on because actually what you don't get is this very considered long-term you know let's let's consider the literature let's consider the evidence base it's it really is far much more here here and now and something you also say is you know around which we've notioned towards already which is the crm so the crew resource management factors and and and, and almost anticipating a narrowed bandwidth anticipating that the but the, the clinicians and indeed the the survivors um, and or people that aren't even injured are going to have a narrow bandwidth. And these are stressful environments. So almost adapting a tool, and this brings me nicely into maybe design phases that, 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 that fits a high stress environment. Could you could you maybe speak to that? Yeah, absolutely. And this was really a, a big focus of ours when we started, because the people we were starting with looking at this were the, the firearms police, specifically the counter-terrorist specialist firearms officers who are going to be working in a very high threat environment, but need to be able to switch between looking at, you know, life-threatening situation to dealing with casualties to to flipping back again. And that's certainly been a concern of of the firearms policing leadership throughout is they don't want them doing casualty care when they shouldn't be. But actually what we've proven in a lot of the testing is if you really focus on making it as straightforward and ingrained as possible, then it's not a problem and it actually makes things easier. So as you mentioned, the motor program aspect by developing something that is fits with people's normal assessment of patients. So we're not taking away from the normal, what people would expect as a potentially a CABC assessment. You're walking up and you're doing your, is there any, are they walking? Is there any external bleeding? Now I'm looking at whether they're talking a quick 360 degree check and whether they're breathing or not. And that's what a lot of police, fire and rescue first aid teaching involves anyway so we really wanted to not go away from that um but to focus on the things that are important and in terms of 
looking at what we included we wanted to include something that replaced the physiology so that absolutely that measurement of physiology that takes away it's almost your um yx dodson curve of that sort of crm flow chart where when you really want to focus on something if you're intubating or if you're trying to put a reboa catheter in then absolutely focus only on that and get rid of anything else in your head but if you're working in a high threat environment where there's a lot of other things going on you can't afford to do that and you really need to maintain that ability to move on patient after patient. So having to get rid, getting rid of that counting of that, having to work out the respiratory rate, the pulse rate, what is it, add it up to a minute. How can we replace that? Well, end organ, essentially the end organ effects of that physiology is what we're looking at. So are you walking? Well, if you're walking, you've got enough blood pressure and enough uh, oxygen to be able to walk so and it's obviously the quick way of getting rid of people so that was our decision as the first kind of node point anyone that's walking let, let them go and they can be reviewed later the next decision point would be are they talking and we actually wanted that to be are they talking normally and one of the kind of nuances of this tool is that if you have a little bit more training time we want it available to everyone so the simple question is are they talking um sorry i've missed the catastrophic bleeding bit so are they walking have they got any obvious external bleeding your big c um we've changed the wording on that maybe i'll come on to that later to be severe rather than catastrophic hemorrhage and then are they talking and the talking bit was really to nuance the are they meditating enough? So not just simply are they conscious, but are they conscious enough to be able to speak? Um, the talking normally bit, if you can nuance that, is that kind of higher level function where if you look at the two things where conscious level often drops, your bleeding patients tend to talk. They, they don't become unconscious straight away. They tend to have their eyes open, they stare, they say some words. And it's really that last point where they just drop their conscious level completely where they go into arrest. So really, you want to pick those up before they're unconscious. You want to pick them up when they're still talking and still have an ability to speak to you, but just not quite normally would worry you. So if they're talking normally, they're a P2. And if they're not talking normally or not talking, they're a P1. Um, and then the other bit, that would also work for head injuries. So if they're confused, if they're a bit agitated, if they're not talking normally, they would be flagged up as a sick patient on the more simple version, just are they talking or not? Because that's an easy question to ask and we want it to be easy to remember. Um, the next bit that makes a difference is the penetrating injury that we've brought in at that point, because patients that, if they're not talking, they're a P1 anyway, but if they are talking and they're not walking, they're a P2, unless they've got penetrating injury that could be bleeding inside. So that's why that only comes in at that bit. Um, and then we go down to are they breathing or not? And the other important step in this is obviously opening an airway. Um, if you've had a head injury and you've been hit over the head, you may just have impact brain apnea and really important to open someone's airway and leave them in a recovery position because actually that might be enough. There was a patient on Westminster Bridge who was hit by the car who had his airway opened by an ENT surgeon walking over the bridge and he started breathing again. So we know it can make a difference if it's done quickly. Um and then the, the the final important change, I guess, is the not breathing as opposed to dead. Um, and it was really important for us initially for non-healthcare professionals to have that not breathing. But actually, when we look at all of these incidents now, previously, it was always said, if you're not breathing, you're dead. I don't think that's acceptable to most people now. Most people, we, it was always the most for the most. 
But actually, a lot of times, certainly in the UK, the response is there's enough bystanders who know what to do. And there's, you know, you can really multiply that initial response by having people trained in that first aid. And there's often people who can help you. So in reality, are we really saying that people are dead in a really quick sweep on that first look without really looking as to whether there's anything survivable or not? And I'm not sure most of us would be comfortable with that. Certainly the families that I've heard at inquests who've questioned things haven't been happy with that. And it does feel like, what if there isn't anyone else? What if this is it and it's our first few patients and maybe there's something we can do about this? What if it's crush injury that we've had an instance of that, you know, instances of that recently and actually crush injury needs opening an airway and ventilation and they might survive if they if you do it quickly enough so it was really important for us that in that really first wave people are allowed to focus on opening airways catastrophic hemorrhage getting through everyone and not taking what i think would be appropriate which would be more than 10 seconds you'd want to take a good few minutes to really pronounce someone dead at that stage put them in the recovery position that they get the same treatment as people who are p1s and breathing and then the next wave comes through and really make sure whether there's anything that you can do. And actually, if there's enough resources, if you've got 10 people there and the bystanders want to do CPR, then let them do it. Obviously, we don't want people to stay in an environment that's not safe and we'd never ask people to do that. But I think more often than not, you find increasingly people wanting to help. And in a particular, if it's your friend, your, your daughter, your, you know, Manchester Arena is a good example of a lot of people wanting to do CPR to help people they didn't even know. Um, and you know it's not appropriate if if, if it's at the det- to the detriment of saving other people, but if people are able to do it, then we should at least allow that until we get that next wave in. So that was a really kind of focus on how we worked through the the tool initially, and then we had to nuance a lot of the terminology. Um, work through the arrows, the design that I've had a ridiculous number of conversations on <laughs> what color and what font and all of those sort of things. Um, to get to the final version that we have now. So, so that's fantastic. You know, it's a real walkthrough of, of the design phase. And I guess what comes after design is initial testing, because what, what I love about the 10 second triage, not only is, you know, is it, is it easy to 10 seconds, it should be done in 10 seconds. You know, there's four domains, you know, you've got walking, you've got, um, you've got severe bleeding, you've got talking and you've got breathing. So you've got walking, yes or no. Severe bleeding, yes or no. Got talking, yes or no. And there's a segue of of penetrating injury in there. And then breathing, yes or no. And then and then there's a few, you know, recovery position, yes or no. But but there's those four main domains: walking, severe bleeding, talking, and breathing. And that that is is fantastic because that really notions towards something that clinicians can actually remember in the heat of the moment but i guess my my adjoining question is what did you find in testing so we've tested it a number of times and we've actually sort of developed it with the testing so i won't go through all of the early testing but essentially what we did do was we wanted to make sure it worked we wanted to make sure people could learn it in in a normal amount of time so we sort of set 20 30 minute training time to, to make sure that we weren't spending ages tra- training it. We wanted to make sure it was understandable. And some of the things we nuanced with the development was that penetrating injury, for instance, really defining on the tool now, you'll see it's 
drawn out of the on the person and it defines the neck to sort of groin essentially including the armpits because we found people not realizing that we meant the base of the neck or the groin as somewhere that could cause non-compressible hemorrhage so we really wanted to define some people thought the back wasn't the same as the chest so we really wanted to define that that area and make sure people realize where we meant by penetrating torso trauma because it's not really just torso and that's where we had some of the errors in the early testing other things we found that worked really well in the testing was to have a team leader. So if you've got more than two or three responders, having one person standing back, really pulling people back into that. You're just doing triage, life-saving interventions and moving on. If people got stuck, trying to do a little bit more with a casualty and also just that kind of oversight of actually there's someone over there that's not been seen, just someone with slightly extra bandwidth to keep an overview of the scene while the rest of the team moved forward and, and did the life-saving interventions and tagging and then pulled together the comms. So if it was police or fire in there first, reporting it to the forward command point, the ambulance commander. So you've really got that comms coming in early about what the response is because then you've got a join language you've got the people talking about p1s whereas before not everyone would know what a p1 was which mean, means a lot to an ambulance service if you can say there's 30 p1s and two p2s that's very different to two p1s and 30 p2s because your response is going to be very different um so that common language is really important so those are some of the learning things and the, the other learning thing was about children so in the teaching we will put in that children under two essentially would be not talking or not walking because we found that the children tended to be under triaged, I think, purely for lack of familiarity and difficulty in diagnosing sick children, particularly those who are under two who don't walk and talk normally. So as with the tool, they wouldn't be normally talking and walking. They would be a P1 automatically just to ensure we don't miss those injuries in children. And that fits with the other major incident triage tool that's the secondary tool that's being brought in. Um, so that those are some of the nuances we learned in the testing and training. And we very much got the feedback from people learning it and the people who were teaching it. And we watched it with accuracy and timing on body worn video footage with facilitators um, to really nuance to make sure we were getting everything recorded properly and made sure the simulation was high level simulation. Probably the key points in the final testing, which we ran at the end of this year, which was multi-agency, and we tested it with fire police and ambulance from across the country, um, where the, probably the headline numbers were the timing. We tested the 10-second triage against the MIT, with the, the, the major incident triage tool, which is the new NHS tool that will be replacing the CIV essentially and coming in as a secondary tool. And we ran uh, a simulated MTA of 37 simulated casualties. Um, and those 37 simulated casualties had a range of methodologies. So they were injured by stab. Some were stabbed, some were run over. There was a petrol bomb that went off in a car and there was um, some smoke. So a really bad day. But just trying to mimic all of the different methodologies, um, mostly live casualties, some amputees, some actual amputees and some children. Um, and it took for 10 operators to enter. There was no decision making about when to go in. It was purely about time from entering the scene to having triaged everyone and performed those life-saving interventions and then reported numbers to the ambulance commander. Um, and the average time for the TST runs was six minutes and the average time for MIT was 20 minutes. So for, MIT was only performed by ambulance alone. TST was performed by police, fire and ambulance separately and then all together. 
So for us, the key thing was those life-saving interventions were all done and we checked the accuracy of them within six minutes, which feels like a reasonable time frame to be performing those things compared to 20 minutes, where realistically, if you're opening an airway at 20 minutes, it's too late. Um, and the other thing we found was actually the life-saving interventions were generally performed accurately by everybody. Maybe by the end of the testing day, it became a little bit of a emergency services games because everybody was trying to do it better than everyone else. But what we did get was police, ambulance and fire all working together. There was someone, when they did it as a multi-agency team, you've got like a policeman asking the fire officer for the triage tag and the, and asking the paramedic for the tourniquet. So you've got everybody really knowing what they're doing together and focusing on the same thing, which was brilliant. Um, so, yeah, the, I think we anticipated it would be quicker and we knew it would be practically easier, but I don't think we thought it would be so much quicker. So, yeah, we were pretty pleased with that. Uh, that's fantastic. Uh, you, you know, what you've just notioned towards, because I'd look to, like to look at adoption, actually, because it has been adopted so widely because of its success. And actually, like you said, you know, tapping into intuition far more. But the sequences, as you said, you know, the 10 second triage, the MIT, so the major incident triage tool, and then the enhanced care as a, as a step up from that. But bringing in that uh, uh, enhanced level of care, maybe separate to the scene, so not in the hot zone or indeed in the in the in the in the, in the place itself maybe in that casualty clearing station but to what you were saying about that sequence is it's 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 really it fits really well because everyone can do 10 second triage the ambulance service are called upon to do the mitt and then enhanced care can be the enhanced critical care teams if it's appropriate and when it's appropriate and, and if, it, if it if if that's enhanced care at hospital or, or that's enhanced care at a casualty triage it's collecting station then then so be it but that sequence is really intuitive and and makes makes a lot of sense to me and i suppose on the back end of that is why have you you've got ubiquitous adoption which is fantastic was, was that a struggle or could people see the sequence as we've just we've, we've just spoken to um i think it's it's been a bit of a challenge to get it i mean we actually developed it initially just just in London. And then what we realised was it would be great, but actually it's much better. We we developed an early version of it in London at the same time as which um, Phil Calburn uh, was working on a, a similar, slightly different version of a tool um, with Avon and Somerset. Um, and actually, I think the real strength has been bringing together the work that we did in London with Phil's work with um, NARU. So that kind of really across that ambulance sector, but also focusing on the police side of things. And early on, we'd got the buy-in of the police officers and the firearms training teams who were worried that they were going to have officers doing something different, but that was outside of their scope, but actually understanding how it would enable them to save lives. So I think there's there's been the buy-in from the various agencies, but it's been really key to have the NARI kind of leadership in that area but then taken on by nhs england as a task and finish group and it was actually an nhs england task and finish group that phil calburn chaired that brought all of this work together um and i think probably helped by the fact that mitt was coming in as a new secondary tiers tool as well we really wanted to bring them in together to make sure that they work together so that's allowed us to speed up something that perhaps otherwise would have taken even longer um 
But part of our working through was to get a user group together. So really do a lo- some workshops with all of those people that would be end users. So not the not the bosses, but the operational, your paramedics, technicians, firefighters, all versions of police officers and some military um, soldiers as well to really. And we spent hours going through the wording of it, what it looked like, really how they felt it would work for them as people using it and, and getting that buy in and everyone on that court, those calls were very much this is brilliant and the more people we presented it to and ran it by and trained it with we found people just intuitively picked it up and wanted to do it you know the ambulance people that work with the police we developed it with were would come down and go this is great I wish we could do this and so you realize that actually we thought it was brilliant obviously <laughs> but when you realize that everybody who uses it goes oh yeah actually that really makes sense and I think probably if I'm honest the timing of the Manchester Arena inquiry and the fact that a lot of the things we were trying to address with it probably were encapsulated in some of the problems that happened, you know, on that day. You know, I, I use it as an example when I'm explaining, you know, what it's like, you know, if you as the first person, as the first, and it is often an armed police officers and, and, and first aiders or bystanders that find themselves running into these events. It's the first person in there when you're faced with all of these things going on. Um like knowing having some framework something just to go where do I even start and actually that's been defined by lots of people who've walked into these events everyone that gave evidence there def- described that kind of overwhelming sense of like just almost being hit by something not knowing what to do Matthew Langloy who was the chief of the league doctor for the raid at the Bataclan describes despite that being his job despite training with them all of the time describes walking in in his book into the Bataclan and having to take all of his strengths to overcome this kind of sense of oh my god what's happened even though he trained that a million times so really really important that people have this framework that they can I always like refer it back to when I started doing ALS training (laughs) and like you know you're sort of ABC you've got something to when you get stuck to just go back to and like you said that walking talking breathing not breathing thing like if people can just remember that and 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 have a card as well to remind them then I think that's that's really taken traction and people have seen the benefit in something practical and easy to use that everyone can use. So it's a long way of saying, I think um, it's by getting the buy-in of people, by bringing them in and bring them along with us and getting people to see how it works and by everybody using it going, this is great. I can really see how this is going to work for me. And I think it's been a user thing more than uh, anything else. And the people who want to use it going, we really want to do this. So I think that's how we've managed to get that that buy-in from pretty much everyone. And we've obviously spent time trying to explain <laughs> why and how it works. So I understand, Claire, there's going to be a national rollout of the 10-second of triage. So it will be disseminated in the ambulance services and the police services and the fire and rescue services and mountain rescue. And indeed, there's sort of an educational package as we speak almost this week going, you know, being being recorded and, and filmed. Um, from your perspective, a couple more questions before we come into land. Just is, have you got any um, thoughts on the write-up, the sort of the retrospective write-up of this, sort of reflecting on um, the educational package, maybe the reproducibility, maybe the sensitivity, the specificity of of how it how it caters to uh, and and addresses acute injury. Have you got any plans to do a write-up? Absolutely. I mean, the only reason we have, and we should have done it already. The only reason we haven't done it is because we've been focusing on 
actually just getting it in place and getting people to agree and the training plans. So there's um, Jamie. So, I mean, I, I, the team of us that have been part of the task and finish group from NHS England, Jamie Vasale, Dave Bull, Phil and myself and Sean Harris have worked on an initial short piece that has been submitted to be published that just explains it briefly. But in terms of publishing all the testing results, that's the next stage. So we absolutely will do that as soon as possible. Um, and then it's been very much discussions about procurement. So the tagging ideally is going to be slap bands rather than the um, foldable tags, just because we want something really quick that no one has to spend time doing. Um, probably didn't mention, but the, the 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 edge of the tags will be checkerboard, so it will define the TST from um, MIT or any other triage tool, so people know which one has been done. Um, and then a lot of the discussions have been about, as I said, just put that design, the procurement, the NHS uh, England will put out to tender for procurement for the tags so that every service that is going to be bringing it in should at least be have someone to go to to purchase the tags from which on a large scale should be cheaper than if people are all trying to do it individually and it will be a set template um nari will maintain the ownership of the um the flow chart and the versions of it in case we change any of it so they will produce aid memoirs and the training material for everybody to use so part of the plan this thursday is to train is to film a video so that we can video people doing it to demonstrate exactly how to do it and build that into national training resources for fire police and ambulance and anyone else that wants to use it the same thing will be available for everybody with um, a PowerPoint lesson plans, nuanced, the little points I've tried to describe that we've learned to the training we'll put into the lecture guides because we really want everybody to be able to have that material to be able to train from. Um, and the plan is for that to be available for everyone. So once we've got through that with the plan for it to start to be trained from April 23 with a year to roll it out to April 24. After that's in place, then we'll, we'll, we'll finish the write up. <laughs> So listen, if that wasn't enough um, in its entirety, uh, Claire, I understand, you know, we notioned towards in your bio, you've also got an NIHR um, grant approved for looking at what's happening in the hot zone and hot zone working in in major incidents. Um, As we sort of come into land, could you could you maybe just notion to that? Because that that is also in the background and you're also sort of working on that at the moment. Could you could you maybe just speak to some sort of the key or seminal points in, in that research? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's ended up being quite a big project, to be honest. It's a three year project and we're still we're sort of, well, two thirds of the way through nearly, I guess. Um, but actually, one of the things that I probably hadn't anticipated in that is that how long it takes to do this joint research. And actually, and there's four elements to the project where we're looking at um, a, a systematic review of the current evidence of um deaths in the hot zone essentially or deaths at terrorist attacks and major incidents so we're looking at times causes of death and anything that's potentially preventable what's published on that so far we're then looking at gathering data from uk terrorist attacks as well as um supplementing that with some crime data from uh, london hems patients to really try to work out as close as possible times to death which is something we don't have a lot of literature about as well as causes um and any interventions that might make a difference but the time is the thing we really want to know about uh, and that's involving getting uh data and video footage from police and the ambulance data and the air ambulance data so and and the pathology reports and actually just getting data sharing agreements and 
trying to get the ethical approval and everything else for that joint um, project has been much harder, you know, and actually I've had people, you know, the various agencies saying, if this is so hard, why is it so hard? (laughs) It's never been done before. It's impossible. It's not impossible, but it's really important that we get to learn from all of those, those data together. Um, And then actually the quality, another bit of it is qualitative review, which is questioning survivors and responders to terrorist attacks to, to pick up on, uh, things that have affected responders and and their ability to respond, what they're willing to do, um, and equally from the survivor's point of view, what they'd expect from people responding. And actually, we've, I mean, that's being written up now, but there's some really fascinating information that I think as people responding to these events, we don't ever really know what it's like to be on the other side of it. So learning from those people who have been involved and what it's like is really, really important. And there's some really important things that have picked up that I actually haven't changed, sadly, in, in the sort of many years since 77. And I think that we'll find there's a huge number of other research areas to work on from there. Um, in particular, the, you know, what, how we, how we humanize some of the training for this. And that's probably leads me into some of this triage stuff and how we really make it as practical as possible. But we try and bring in those human elements so people know what it's like to walk into a room like that and to have real people, you know, saying, don't stop on my son or my daughter, because actually we've kind of drilled it very much. They're not breathing the dead. It's a man I can move on. They're not breathing the dead. And that's not what it's like for real. So we really want to bring that some of what we've learned from the project, some of the real casualty timelines from the project into future training and hopefully to develop some of the um, ad jobs and, and how we work together. And that's probably a point that's worth finishing with, actually, which is that at the moment, probably a lot of people know the MTA jobs say only ambulance or triage. And that was one of our stumbling blocks initially with this whole triage tool was how could we get it agreed that everyone could do it. Um, and there is a plan, I understand, that Jessup um, and the MTA jobs group have agreed to look to change that wording so that it says any emergency service can triage as long as they're using the recommended NHS England tool. So that was a a big step that we got to and does tie into a lot of the other work as well. Uh, listen, that's fantastic and an amazing place to finish. And just, I will just say this, you know, just the, the, something we notioned towards and you mentioned earlier about this human factors piece and actually bringing education to a place where it acknowledges the, the human factors involved and from a design phase and actually we what we're doing is what you're doing is building tools together with the team building tools which actually complement the overwhelming human factors sometimes uh, that, that a clinician can be going through so that actually the tool complements the situation and facilitates the ability to to win in that situation to implement to work in that situation rather than maybe what we have now or indeed for certainly historically where by reliant on long-term memory reliant on physio on counting on maths on recollection on clear lines of communication which so it's really yeah I, i'm a massive fan of this because it, it really does what the work you're contributing towards both in hot zone working and in this helps people do their job better which is a fantastic place to be really so thank you for this last hour claire and thank you for your time for your insights and indeed for your work on this vital piece of work thank you very much Owen, and thank you for letting me talk about it for so long thanks for listening to the episode 
please feel free to rate, review, and subscribe on whichever platform you're listening to. Please also head over to the World Extreme Medicine website where you can find more engaging content on extreme medicine webinars and indeed the collection of courses from our global network, including humanitarian, disaster relief, expedition, space, military, tactical, and performance medicine. Thanks again.